0: Hebrews chapter number 2. I want to read just verse number 1 tonight, and then we're going to look at a few verses in chapter number 1. The Bible says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. I want to read that again. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time We should let them slip. Would you pray with me tonight? Heavenly Father, Lord, I need your help. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, I need your help. I cannot do the preaching on my own, Lord. If you don't give me the power and unction, I will not be able to accomplish what needs to be done tonight. But I pray, Father, that you would speak to hearts in a mighty way, that you gain glory out of what's done tonight. If there's one amongst us lost and undone, show them their need of Calvary, Lord, Uh, If there's one here that lacks a foundation in the truth of your words, I pray that they'd be shored up and solidified, Lord, in the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord, that just every heart's need would be met. And Father, when we leave this place tonight, we'll know that we've met with you, Father, and we've obeyed your word. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the cross of Calvary. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1 tells us this, that there's some things that we need to hold on to because they're prone or apt to slip. And I've titled the message tonight, A Slippery Slope. Uh, if you'll notice, the first word in chapter number two is the word therefore. Now, you don't use the word therefore except it's in context. Uh, if I was to walk up to you, you ever known somebody that they like to start conversations in the middle? You ever known anyone like that? I've known a few people like that. You'll go up to them and they'll look at you and they'll say, you know, I was thinking the other day about this and I was thinking I've not even had a conversation with you. Or they'll reference something that they've been thinking and kind of leave you in the dark. Well, the word of God uses this word, therefore, that's because there's some context to this passage. You see, the context is found in chapter number one. Paul says we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Now, you know, if God said that we ought to give heed, I believe that'd be enough tonight, don't you? If God says you ought to pay attention to something, that's enough to warrant our attention. And certainly if God said you ought to give more heed, uh, then your ears really ought to perk up. You ought to really listen to what's being said. But God goes further than that, and He says not just that you ought to give heed, not just that you ought to give earnest heed, but that you ought to give the more earnest heed to these things which we have heard. Can I tell you that the Word of God is important tonight? The truths of the Word of God are important. It's not just enough that we pray. It's not just enough that we try to live a good life. But every single believer ought to study the Word of God and try to be grounded and founded in the truths of the Word of God. And so the context provides our attention to be drawn to the first chapter. And the Bible says that there's some things that are spoken of in the first chapter that even in Paul's time, I believe it was Paul that wrote this, you don't have to believe that, but I believe it was, that even in Paul's time, the church was allowing some things to slip. Can I tell you today that there used to be a time when, uh, as a majority in the church, the Word of God was believed. There was a time when the fundamental truths of Christianity were upheld. But can I tell you, that's not the day we're living in today. You'd be amazed how many denominational leaders, quote unquote, that reject the truth of the word of God in many areas. There's some things that the church is allowing to slip. And many times it's not that there's a full on war against these doctrines. It's just that they're neglected. They're ignored. We live in a day when the church tries to cull through and decide what doctrines can be ignored in favor of popularity. We live in a day when uh, preachers try to avoid certain truths and certain doctrines because they might be controversial. And can I say the word of God is controversial? You either live by it or you reject it, one of the two. And I've heard many people say this before, and maybe you've heard it, I don't know, but I've heard people say, well, I, I preach the gospel, but I don't preach doctrine. You ever heard somebody say something like that? Can I tell you, the gospel gospel is a doctrine. In fact, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. Anything you learn about the Word of God is a doctrine. It's a teaching. It's a truth of it. And when we divorce ourselves from the importance of doctrine in our lives, we're surely on a slippery slope. In chapter number one, I could give you a lot of things, but I want to give you just a few tonight, three in fact. I was thinking earlier, I'd like to preach about 15 minutes tonight. I've never done that before. I wonder what it feels like. I'd really like to, but I don't know if that'll happen. Look with me in verse number one of chapter one. The Bible says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Can I subscribe number one to you? That inspiration is a doctrine we better hold on tight to. The first thing God deals with in Hebrews chapter number one is the manner in which God has revealed himself to this world. I was talking earlier to uh, Brother Nick about systematic theology, the study of God in a systematic way. And I've got a systematic theology book that I've been studying. I'm, I'm going to be trying to teach a class on it, and so I thought I better figure it out a little bit, amen? And uh, as you read that book, the, the scholars tell us that there are two basic arenas of the revelation of God. There's the general revelation, and there's sp- the specific revelation of God. The general revelation of God is the notion that God has been revealed to mankind through history, conscience, and nature. And I believe that's true. The Bible says that the heavens declare God's handiwork. And when you look at this world, you'd have to be a fool to not believe that someone created this world around us. History certainly proves the providential hand of God. Who could look at the uprisings and downfallings of nations without believing that there's a God on a throne in heaven that determines these things? And certainly the Bible says that He sets them up and He takes them down. And certainly conscience, you ever notice that there is some kind of moral law and standard across all of the earth, regardless of whether there is an influence of Christianity in that society or not? You can go to the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa, where no man has ever brought the truth of God's word, and you'll find that there is a moral law that is in place there. But can I tell you that the general revelation of God is not sufficient to bring a man to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? You can study nature all you want, but nature is not going to bring you to a saving knowledge of God. You can examine history all that you want, but that's not going to bring you to a saving knowledge of God. You can study the notions of morality and philosophy and conscience all that you want, and that will not bring you to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You need the special or the specific revelation of God for that. You say, what is that? God has revealed himself through his word. When we divorce ourselves from the doctrine of the inspiration of God, we make shipwreck of our faith. And let me tell you something, in most churches today, I'm not trying to lift up Walridge and I'm not trying to put anyone else down. I'm just trying to tell you a basic, simple fact. Most churches today reject the verbal, plenary inspiration of the Word of God. You say, preacher, what do you mean by inspiration? The Bible says that uh, God spake through holy men of God, holy men of old. They were moved by the Holy Ghost. I want to say that when we examine inspiration of the Word of God, the first thing we need to understand is the author of the Word of God. The Bible says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners. Listen to me, we either believe the Bible is a supernatural book or we believe it's a lie. One of the two. You can't have it one way and the other. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Who really authored the word of God? I'd propose to you tonight. And in fact, the Bible teaches this clearly that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. God breathed the word of God. Every single bit of it. Sixty-six books uh, written over hundreds and hundreds of years by multitudes of authors, and yet there is a scarlet cord of the redemptive plan of God all the way from Genesis to Revelations. There is consistency. You could examine the prophecies of the Word of God. It is absolutely illogical and unresponsible to try to look at the prophecies even concerning only the first coming of Christ and reject the inspiration of the Word of God. Listen. Listen, you've got uh, in the Old Testament, the Bible prophesies uh, that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. It does not say a young woman. And let me say that if the Bible said a young woman conceived and uh, bear a child, that would be no new or unusual thing. It happens every day. But the prophecy was that a virgin would conceive and bear a child. The Bible gives us the place of Christ's first coming, the circumstances of Christ's first coming, the purpose of Christ's first coming. The Bible gives us what town He would be uh, born in. The Bible gives us what town He would sojourney in after He was born. The Bible tells us that there would be a star that would arise out of Jacob. The Bible teaches us of the sinless life of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us of the prophecies concerning that life of his death, that he would be numbered with the transgressors, that he would be mocked and scourged, that he would be given vinegar and gall, that he would die a sacrifice for mankind, that he would rise from the grave. It is nonsensical to believe that God did not author the word of God. It's nonsensical. And you hear a lot of people, I know you've heard them and I've heard them too. Well, the Bible's just full of so many contradictions. Show me one. And they say, well, there's plenty. I'm not asking for plenty. Show me one. Show me one that cannot be explained with a little common sense and Bible knowledge. You can say, well, preacher, you're young. You're a young man. I can show you old men that have preached this book for decades upon decades and would tell you the exact same thing. And listen, if if the King James Bible is so unreliable, why are we still using it? If the if the uh, scholars that tell us that there are so many contradictions in the King James Bible, if they say this and if that's true, why can't they show us? One? The truth of the matter is there's not a single contradiction in that book. There's not a single contradiction. We must understand the author of the word of God, the authenticity of the word of God. But I want you to notice that we have to understand the authority of the word of God. We better hang on to this. We better hang on to the fact that the word of God is our supreme authority in faith and in practice. Let me tell you, we live in a day of denominationalism. You say, preacher, uh, are you for or against denominationalism? I'm absolutely against it. You say, but preacher, aren't you an independent Baptist? Yeah, independent. You say, what does that mean? That means we don't answer to anyone except Christ. The word of God is our sole authority for faith. And practice and we better hold on to this truth because never have we lived in a day full of men's traditions like we live in today. Never have we lived in a day where so many authorities were trying to contend for the Christ's authorities in our life. And you can go from church to church to church and you'll find groups of people that believe that there are the words of God in that book, but they don't believe it is the word of God. They believe that the context of it is true, but that the words of it are not true. They believe that there are true ideals in it, but that is not absolute truth from cover to cover. And can I tell you, just to make my position clear, I believe every single book and word and sentence of that King James Bible is by inspiration of God. I believe it's what God wants it to be. I believe it's perfect. I don't believe it needs to be changed. I don't even believe it needs to be clarified. Amen. Amen. I don't believe it needs to be picked apart. I don't believe it needs to be dissected. I think it needs to be read and believed and obeyed. That's what it needs today. It was good enough for 400 years. Why all of a sudden is it not good enough now? You say, preacher, you're hammering on this. I'm going to hammer on something here uh, else here in a second. But let me just beat a few more, uh, a few more creases out of this because I believe it's necessary. Uh, in this day that we live in, we're finding that people are getting rid of the word of God and trying to take every single version or perversion that they can because it agrees with their lifestyle. They've now come out with a homosexual translation, quote unquote, of the word of God. Now, listen, if that's not straight out of hell, I mean, my hind foot, if that is not straight out of hell, if we are not uh, understanding the word of God enough to see that that's out of hell, something's wrong with us. And you say, how did we get to that point? When we got to a place where we believed there was no perfect Bible and quit expecting a perfect Bible, then we allowed any and every Bible in. You say, preacher, you believe it's perfect. I believe it's perfect. Why do you believe it's perfect? Because the Bible says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now, this may seem oversimplified to you, and I hope it don't. But if I have a perfect Savior, should I not expect to have perfect Scriptures? I mean, is that too simple for us? If I believe that that Jesus Christ was exactly what he said he was, should I not believe that the Bible is exactly what it says it is? You say, oh, but it's been tainted over the years by men. I don't believe that about my savior. Do you? I believe he's just as sinless today as he's ever been. I don't believe he ever committed a sin. I believe he knew no sin in him was no sin and that he did no sin, as the Bible testifies to us. So why would I believe when the Bible presents to me that the nature of the living word and the nature of the written word are synonymous one with the other? Why would I believe that one of them would be incorruptible, but the other one would be corruptible? That just doesn't make sense to me. In fact, the Bible says that we're born again, not of corruptible seed. Now, now, maybe I'm just missing it, church. But when the Bible says that the word of God is incorruptible, that it abideth forever and that it fadeth not away. What does that mean to you? To me, it means that they're never going to do away with God's word in its perfection. To me, it means that God is going to preserve his words from this wicked generation, as he said in the book of Psalms. I mean, maybe I'm oversimplified, but I just tend to believe that God's word is inspired. Let me give you a second thing tonight. Look with me at verse number 2 of Hebrews chapter number 1. The Bible tells us, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, now notice this, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made The world. And you can read later on in that chapter and it'll speak more of it. But let me say that we better hold on tight to the doctrine of inspiration because there's a lot of people want to take it away from us. But let me say number two, we ought to hold on tight to the doctrine of creation. The whole world is set against a creationist view. You hear me? The whole world is set against a divine creator. And listen, we don't live in a day. I know people say, well, you know, not everybody's a militant atheist. You show me an atheist that's not a militant atheist. Show me one. You show me an evolutionist that does not want to press that theory upon people that have a creationist view. You show me one. Uh, we find in this day that we live that the theory of evolution, it's a lie is what it is, but, but it is a theory. And that's all Darwin ever meant for it to be was a theory. That the theory of evolution, which is as much of a religion as any other religion in the world, is taught as absolute fact in the public school system, while the creationist belief and creationist view of the word of God is rejected as a fairy tale. It takes more faith to believe that we came from nothing than it does to believe that we came from a creator. I've given this illustration before, uh, and I used to give it to my teenagers all the time. You know, we say silly things, teenagers make them laugh. And I'd ask them, I'd be preaching to them, and I'd ask them, how many of you are afraid of a rhinoceros appearing in your room while you're gone at church and tearing up your bedroom? Of course, they'd all snicker and laugh, and they'd say, nobody's nobody's afraid of that. And I'd say, why? And they'd say this, they'd say, because it's never happened before. It's never happened before. There's no precedent for it. It just doesn't. Why would we expect something that's never happened before? We've never seen it. The scientific theory demands that we base our ideals upon things that are observable. And by the way, the scientific theory cannot be proved. Science cannot be proved by the scientific theory. There's a multitude of things in this world. I hope I'm not getting a little too deep for you, but there's a multitude of things that can't be proven by the scientific theory. Mathematical equations can't be proven by the scientific theory. They have to be presupposed. Moral and ethical things cannot be uh, solved by the scientific theory. Let me ask you this. What made the scientists of the Third Reich wrong and the scientists of the Western world right? Morals and ethics has to determine that truth. The scientific theory cannot. All scientific theory can do is observe raw data. There's plenty of things. The metaphysical world cannot be dealt with by the scientific theory. And yet, every single day, it's taught in public schools that everything can be explained by science. The metaphysical, what tells you? Now, listen, I know I'm getting a little deep, but you hang with me. How do we know you're not just a brain in a jar? How do you know that? How do you know that the past has always been the past and the past was not created five minutes ago with the appearance of age? That's metaphysical. That's things outside the realm of science. It can't be proven by science. But I think most of us are aware that we're not a bunch of brains in jars, aren't we? Aren't we? I mean, we know that. We take that by faith. And any scientist would tell you the same thing. And they take it how? Same as me and you, by faith. The Bible doesn't say the just shall live by fact. The just shall live by faith. And scientific theory is not the ultimate authority in this world. The word of God is. And every day evolution is taught in school systems as absolute fact. And we're allowing it to permeate the thoughts and ideals and beliefs of our children. In so much that now theistic evolution, you say, what's theistic evolution? The belief that God used evolution as a means of creation, which is completely heretical and unbiblical. That's beginning to pervade our churches and many, many, many religious uh, leaders. And I, I put quotations on both that religious and leaders. Amen. Believe that God used the means of evolution to create this world. My Bible teaches me that God created this world in six literal days and rested on the seventh. That's what my Bible teaches me. And our children need to be taught that truth. You say they'll be ridiculed. Yeah, Bible believers have always been ridiculed. They've always been ridiculed. But listen, when you teach your children, you'll teach them that two plus two equals four, whether their friends agree or not. You know why? Because it's true. So why is it then that we won't teach our children the truth of creation? Because we're afraid that they might get ridiculed. We owe it to our families, to our churches, to our children to teach them the truth of the word of God, despite what this world may think about it, because a creationist doctrine is slipping away. And by the way, when you give way on creation, listen to me, when you give way on creation, and if you give way on inspiration, you will give way on creation. You'll find these three doctrines. I'll go ahead and give you the third one. The third one's going to be the incarnation. And you'll find that these three things are successive. You'll find that when a man denies the inspiration of the word of God, it's not long before he denies the creation of the world by God. And when he denies the creation of the world by God, it's not long before he denies the incarnation of God in the flesh as the son of God. These things are progressive. I want to give you an anecdote. It's not an anecdote. It's a fact. But I want to give you an observation. I'm on Facebook. I'm high tech, you know. I'm high tech. And, you know, Facebook is one of them things you got like six million friends. When it comes time to move, you can't find any of them, you know, and you become friends with people. And I'm friends with a young man on Facebook, and I won't say his name in case he should one day listen to this. But I'm friends with him on Facebook. And I've watched he's one of these whose God is his own logic. And I've watched him as he began simply denying things. I say simply, I don't mean to put a slight emphasis on it, but I watched him. He began first by denying the inspiration of the word of God and relegating the King James Bible to just one of many versions and not the inspired word of God for the English people. And then pretty soon he started denying other key and major doctrines. He's gotten to the point now till he says that he cannot even believe that Jesus is the son of God. This doctrine thing's important, church. It affects the way we live our lives. It affects who we are. Creation, when you deny creation, you deny everything about the word of God. Uh, Creation is the ultimate, uh, was the manifestation of God to existence. And uh, you say, why does my belief in uh, inspiration matter as it relates to my belief in creation? For this simple fact, because God spoke this world into existence. The word of God is the foundation of this world. When God chose to create this world, he did it by, wow, let there be. And so if the word of God is not true, then how do we know that creation around us is true? When God spoke this world into existence as that foundation, that's what designated that up was up, down was down, the sky is blue, the grass is green. And if we don't believe in the word of God, then it rips a absolute gash in the whole theory of creation. When we deny creation we deny this third thing, and I'm gonna give it to you in hush. Maybe I will preach fifteen minutes, I don't know. Probably already been fifteen minutes, amen. Uh, but I want you to look at verse number three. Uh, the Bible tells us who being the brightness of his glory, this is speaking of Christ, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down. On the right hand of the majesty on high. I'll tell you something we need to hang on to church. And I've already given it to you. But that is the divinity of Christ. His deity. And I use this word the incarnation. Because the incarnation proves to us the deity of Jesus Christ. That God sent his son into this world. And that his son was not just his son but was God himself. You say I don't understand the trinity. Neither do I completely. Uh, you, you just show me one thing about God you do understand completely. Amen. I don't understand everything about it completely, but I believe it. Why? Because the word of God teaches the Trinity. You say, but the word Trinity is not found in, in the Bible. And that's true. But the doctrine of it is found time and time and time and time again. Uh, we look, for example, at the baptism of Christ. We find the Son of God being baptized, the Holy Spirit in the likeness of a dove descending upon him, and the Father speaking from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We find the Trinity. We find in the book of First John that the Bible speaks of three that speak in heaven, and they agree one with another. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son are the triune God. You say, how, how can you illustrate that to me? I'm going to give you a simple illustration. And I know it's inadequate, but it helped me to understand it. You can imagine a dark room with three candles that are lit. And all three candles are three individual candles. And they're all three candles. And they're all three giving off light. No one candle is giving off a stronger light than the other. But if you were to say, where is the light in this room? The light permeates that room. You can't divide the light from one candle from the light from another candle. You see, there's light in the room. There's three sources of that light. Uh, of those three sources, none is the stronger than the other. And by the way, God the Father is no more God than God the Holy Spirit is. They're all three God. They're co-existent, they're co-eternal, they're co-authoritative. They are all 3 god they are coexistent, they are co eternal they are co authoritative they are all 3 God. Jesus Christ, being the Son of God, is also God in the flesh. The Bible says, Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, that is to say, God with us. And I believe Jesus Christ was not just a good man, but I believe he was and uh, God in the flesh. And I believe he is still God to this day. We need to recognize a few things about Christ's incarnation. I want you to notice first off the purity of it. The Bible says, Who being the brightness of his glory. Uh, Jesus Christ manifests God to mankind. And Jesus Christ was no less God than God the Father. He was the brightness of his glory, the manifestation of it. Uh, he was pure and he was sinless. I know he was a 100% man, but he was also 100% God, every bit of it. He never sinned once. He, I mentioned it already. He knew no sin. He did no sin. And in him was no sin. You say, what does that mean, preacher? That means that uh, he knew no sin mean, uh, meant that uh, he never thought a sinful thought. The inward sins of the heart. He never thought a sinful thought. He never had a sinful inclination or a sinful desire. He did no sin means he committed no sin. And in him was no sin, meaning he had no sin nature. You and I are born with a sin nature. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's who we are. We're born into this world. The psalmist said uh, that in sin uh, did my mother conceive me. I was shapen in iniquity. The Bible says that as in Adam all die. Death passed upon all men from Adam. We're born with a sin nature. We get that from our fathers. Some of you ladies say amen right there. But we find that Christ did not take on him the nature of an earthly father because he did not have an earthly father. He had a heavenly father. He was born of a virgin. The Holy Ghost of God came upon Mary and she conceived and bore a son, called his name Jesus. He took on him the heavenly nature of his heavenly father when his body was begotten into this world. We see the purity of it, but I want you to notice uh, the proclamation of it. The Bible says that he is the brightness of his glory and he is the express image of his person. Philip said to the Lord, said, show us the father and it sufficeth us. And Christ said, Philip, have I been so long a time with you and you have not known me? If you have seen me, you have seen the father. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The Bible says no man hath seen God at any time, but the only begotten of the father hath showed, manifested him, hath shown him to us. We know who the father is because we know who the son is. And to know Christ is to know the father. Uh, When you know Jesus Christ, you're not missing out on any part of the Godhead. He is the express image of the Godhead. The Bible says in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. So he manifests who God is to us. We see the proclamation, but notice his power. The Bible says in upholding all things by the word of his power. This was the man that took his hand and by the word of his power calmed the sea. This was the man that by the word of his power raised the dead. This was the man that by the word of his powers twisted and bent the very laws of nature unto his beck and call and unto his beautiful will. By the word of his power. And you say, uh, what's the significance of the word of his power? The power of his word. (laughs) They're one and the same. He is the living word. This is the written word. When God spoke this world into existence, it was the power of the Son of God being expressed uh, by uh, God the Father to this world when he spake. And by the way, the Trinity, the threefold Trinity, had each one of them a part in the creation of this world. You say, what was it? God is the eternal soul of the Godhead. He is a spirit and he spoke. It was from him that this creation issued. But when he spoke, he expressed and manifested it through his son. It was the power of the son that created these things. And you say, what about the Holy Spirit? The Bible says the spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. The spirit giveth life. The Bible says the letter of the law killeth, but the spirit giveth life. You ever wonder why it is you can take a cup of dirt And you take that cup of dirt and you set it on your uh, nightstand and that cup of dirt won't ever do anything. And you ever notice how you could take a cup of water and set it on your windowsill and that cup of water ain't going to do anything. It might evaporate. That's about it. And you could take a seed from a plant and you could set that seed on your windowsill and it's never going to do anything but sit there. But you put all three of those things together, the earth, the water and that seed. And with the sunlight that's given to it, it begins to grow into life. You say, where'd that life-giving power come from? The Bible says that all the earth was covered with waters and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep, upon the face of the waters and gave a life-giving power to this world and to this earth. All three parts of the Trinity had their place and part and function within the creation of this world, including Jesus Christ, the Son. The Bible says all things are upheld by the word of His power. Listen. Listen. I know the evolutionists would like us to believe that there is an intrinsic, substantive power within this world. But that substantive power that keeps the planets in alignment, that keeps gravity functioning, that keeps the plants blooming, that keeps the animals functioning, that's by the Word of God that these things are accomplished. You say, how does the Bible do that? I'm talking about the living Word. It was created by His Word. You see, when God told this earth what to do, when God created this world in the way that it was, he's the same yesterday, today and forever. And the word of God never changes. And so it's held true throughout all these years. We see the power. But I want you to notice the purpose. Look what it says. It says, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins. Never have we lived in a day when the motive of the son of God has been so distorted. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. Never have we lived in a day when the motive, the purpose of the word of God and of the son of God has been so distorted. Nowadays, people take the principles of Christ and reject the person of Christ. Do you know why that is? Because when Christ came into this world, he did not come to teach us principles, but he came to present us his person. Why did Jesus Christ come into the world? Some people would have you to believe that Christ came into the world to do miracles. And certainly Christ did a lot of miracles when he walked this earth. And some would say that Christ came amongst us so that he could heal the sick and raise the dead and open blinded eyes and deaf ears and loose dumb tongues. And that's why he came was to do these miracles. That's not what the Bible teaches. And some people say he came to show us a higher way of living, to show us how to be good to our neighbor. And certainly, when you look at the life of Christ, you'll find a means to being good to those around you. But that wasn't why he came. And some say he came into this world to do away with a religious system and to replace it with another religious system. But that's not why he came into this world. What does the Bible teach us? For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Say, preacher, do you have a problem with social efforts? No, I don't have a problem with them, as long as the overwhelming emphasis of them is the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in a day when uh, most churches, the only mission work that they do is putting shoes on feet and food in bellies, and they still let those people die and go to hell because they never give them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have no issue with putting shoes on people's feet, but it ought to be a means to share the gospel with them. I have no problem with putting food in someone's belly, especially mine, amen? But it ought to be a means of giving people the gospel when we do these things for them. And we're losing sight of that in the church today. And now we live in a day when all we want to do, uh, I think Vance Havner said it best when he spoke of uh, the prodigal son. He said if the prodigal son had lived today, uh, they would have given him a cot and a sandwich and he would have never gone home. (laughs) That's the overwhelming emphasis of mission work and of the work of the church today is that of charity. And that is not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is the carrying out of the Great Commission as defined in the Word of God, the giving of the gospel. We ought to be hospitable, the Bible says. We ought to be given to hospitality. We ought to do good unto others. Our faith ought to have feet. It ought to change what we do and we ought to be good to people. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I'm saying it's a means to giving people the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just a means to bettering their uh, temporal situation. We find the purpose given here. Everybody still with me? A couple of you. That's good. (laughs) We'll wake the others up when it's over. Amen. (laughs) But I want you to notice the position of Christ is spoken of. Look what it says. Sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That implies the physical bodily resurrection of our Lord. We spoke about that Sunday morning, so I'm not going to dwell on it very long. But there's some that would have us to believe and by the way sitting down on the majesty on the right hand of the majesty on high implies his second coming as well you say why is that and it speaks of it uh, later on in the chapter when it speaks of him sitting down waiting expecting till his enemies be made his footstool uh we live in a day where people tell you that what you believe about prophecy doesn't matter and i listen i know i we've all got family we all got family that that probably we just have to not talk about that with am i right A lot of us do. We got family that if we sit down and start talking to them about premillennialism, they shut us down, they call us white horse, pre-tribbers, everything else. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of people I understand that, that you've probably got in your family, and I got people in my family this way, that, that the subject just has to be avoided. But can I tell you that premillennialism matters? Christ's position in this world today and his soon coming again matters. Over and over and over and over again, it's dealt with in the word of God. You say, do you believe people that are all millennial are bad people? No, but I do believe they're wrong. Somebody say amen right there. I do believe they're wrong. Since when does disagreeing with someone mean you hate them? It's not what it means. I disagree with plenty of people still love them, still think they love the Lord. But I'm a premillennialist because the Bible teaches premillennialism. The Bible teaches that Christ is coming again soon and if that we are not appointed under wrath, do you believe that tonight that 's what the book of Second thessalonians says we 're not appointed under wrath. You look in the book of revelation and the first uh, three chapters present to us the church age, but by the time you get to chapter number four, the church isn 't seen on earth anymore, snatched away, caught up to heaven how does uh How does Revelation Chapter Four begin with a door and a shout and a trumpet <laughs> that 's how it begins. Uh, the bible says uh Uh, That we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God shall sound. We shall be caught up together with him to meet him in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Let me tell you something. What we believe about prophecy matters today. It matters. I'm not saying it's the most important thing. I'm saying it matters. I'm not saying you ought to hate people that disagree with you about it. I'm saying it matters. You know Why? Because time and time again, the motivation for godly living for the New Testament church was the soon coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, Time and time again, the Bible says, every man that hath this hope in himself purifieth himself. People that don't believe Jesus Christ is coming soon, most of them are going to live like he's not coming soon. But we as believers, if we believe Jesus Christ could come at any moment, that changes the way in which we live. And that's a doctrine that's slipping in this day that we live in. People are saying, oh, it don't matter. It don't matter. Yeah, it matters. Why? Because it's in the word of God. Everything in the word of God matters. There are weightier matters of the law. That's what the Bible teaches. But everything in the word of God matters. God could have made this book as thick as he wanted to make it. But he chose to give us these truths. Why? They're essential. They're essential. Every one of them. Some more than others. But every one of them is essential and it matters in our lives. Church, we better hang on to these. Let let me make you a promise as your pastor that by the grace of God, as long as I pastor this church, we'll stand on these things. We're not going to move from them. I'm not going to compromise on the word of God, not going to compromise on creation, not going to compromise on incarnation. There's a multitude of other doctrines we ought not compromise on. But let me tell you, this world wants you to compromise on these doctrines. And so you better do you better do what Paul exhorted us to do. Give the more earnest heed lest they should slip because the world's trying to pull them away from us.